Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Excited Stevens here. His new book is published by Kensington. So let's give him a very warm round of applause for Stephen Greco. Thank you, Christine, and thank you for hosting this event, and thank you, Victor, for taking part. For taking part. Um, and thank you all for coming. Uh, authors, as you know, this is very obvious, but authors spend two or three years on a book um, thinking about the people they're serving, um, but not seeing them, you know, sitting at your laptop. So it's amazing always to see uh, a sea of friendly faces that you've been sort of imagining um, when, when this comes, um, when time's comes time for this. I'm going to read three sh short excerpts and uh, with some gracious remarks and happy patter in between, and then Victor and I will talk for a little bit. Um, this is my fourth novel. Um, the previous three involved characters that were very unlike myself, washed up billionaires, frustrated wives, um, uh, cool hunters, t teenage cool hunters, um, a panhandler who is rehabilitated and turns out to be a psychopathic idiot, but really like sort of handsome. For this one, <laughs> and thus appealing, but for this one I wanted to stick very close to myself and I thought, oh, that would be interesting. It's a very hard challenge because obviously fict fiction requires um, some transformation, so one has to be very careful about what one uses from one's own life if, if you want to be interesting to someone else. But I wrote this book as a kind of um, wish fulfillment. I had been seeing someone but not really seeing them. And I came to see that my feelings of affection were not requited. And I didn't want to be inconvenient. I did want to remain a good friend. I didn't want to get all moony. So I started the book as a way to create an environment where the guy could maybe have the happy ending. And even though that was always the uh, plan, once you start writing a book and your characters begin to come to life, you have to respect them. They're not your employees. You have to see where they lead you. So it wasn't until the very end that I understood whether it would be a happy ending or not, and you'll, you'll find that out when you read the book. Um, but I'd like to, um, uh, the main character is a guy named Peter, um, who's around my age. He's survived AIDS, and he's, um, uh, he works as an advertising executive. He thinks he's survived and, 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 um, and done well, but a little bit like Candide, he, um, he survived more dead than alive. He's a little more of a twitch and a kind of, a little more wounded than he thinks. Um, um, in it, he meets a younger guy um, who's uh, winds up, who starts being a bartender, and then they sort of talk to each other and go out with each other. Uh, the guy is a little is is cute and witty, um, also as clueless as Peter is, but he fits into Peter's kitchen and he likes that. And 500 pages later, oh well, you'll see what happens. 
I want to do three passages, all quite short. Um, the first one comes in chapter 5, just before Peter's first real conversation with Will. Peter is an advertising agency executive, as they say, and he thinks he really has a big picture of life, which you'll see in this, in this pa 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 passage. What the, what the reader knows is that he's already talked to this guy in the first chapter, but he didn't recognize that he has already met the love of the next love of his life. So he's, he's all like smart and has a big idea about culture, but he's a little clueless too. Anyway, in this passage, he's sitting on the promenade in Brooklyn Heights, looking at the skyline of lower Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn Heights too. New York itself, that ludicrous creature, was one reason why Peter was now in advertising and not the field he thought he wanted in 1975, poetry. This was a thought he often had while sitting on the promenade in Brooklyn Heights, as he liked to do occasionally. I'm going to stutter a little bit, so it'll, that'll add about a minute and a half to the reading. <laughs> Contemplating life and the postcard view of lower Manhattan skyline rising over the East River. Cities may affect a geological mode of existence, since they are solid and constructed of essentially the same materials as the caves they superseded, but they actually function more biologically than, uh, than geologically. Cities are given birth Excuse me, cities are given birth by the human species. They're laid or spun or excreted, and then they grow and or strengthen and or fester through a life force of their own. Sometimes a new city will sprint along for a millennium or two like Babylon, then find itself exhausted and need to rest. Sometimes a city won't find its stride for centuries like London, and then when it does, it will gallop for a while only to trip on a stick and fall in the mud. On any given day, cities seem permanent as befits their sacred role as vessels of civilization. Yet cities evolve over time like species do, adapting to new conditions of climate, commerce, and the like, and in order to, sur and in order to survive in changing ecological niches. And as cities evolve, civilization budges forward in a direction we call progress once it proves dominant. Sometimes the aspect of a city that best allows it to survive a great ecological shift is precisely its impermanence. Think of Troy rebuilt again and again. Yet the story of how the permanent and the transient function together is never quite visible to a city's inhabitants who can spend a lifetime walking its streets, contemplating its towers, laughing in its sidewalk cafes, and sunning themselves on the steps of its marbled, marble columned museums in springtime, poring over books of historical maps, and beholding the urban countenance thousands of feet above the top of its tallest towers from airplanes and still not see enough. The full story is discernible only at the end of history, when the reasons why a city was born and died can be fathomed in perspective, which is why a city can be dead before it knows it, like ancient Rome, or more alive than it realizes, like New York today. In the almost 40 years since Peter arrived there, New York had changed profoundly. Unlike more decorous capitals, New York uh, embraced new historical moments eagerly, even recklessly. A frenzy of maritime trade, an industrial revolution, an era of immigration, a belle époque, an industrial revolution, uh, where, oh, sorry, a belle époque, a jazz age, a great depression, a post-war imperium, 
which meant what, that while the rest of America was lingering at the vi victory bash of the 1950s, in the New York in the 1960s was latching onto something new once again. The city was famously poor in 1975. That's when Peter got there, by the way. Uh, yet just beneath the graffitied crust of that moment was a forge of new wealth, fueled by the work of bright young idea workers in, a bur in the burgeoning sectors of media and advertising. Uh, so when America woke up to the fact that it was no longer manufacturing the fastest trains or most advanced cars or supplying the best education or most comprehensive medical care, it found it had branding a new improved thought grammar that was chief among a whole suite of made in New York consciousness 2.0 goods and services for a brave new world in which more people needed more things that were more essential to their well-being than trade service, train service and education. It was branding that allowed new creeds to tendril into the gaps of American life, left by the withering of old creeds devoted to mom, apple pie, and Sunday dinner. And people saw that it was good. Would the stratum of remains left by this era be the one that in 10,000 years archaeologists stabilized as representing New York in its true golden age? Who knew? Wouldn't the stratum even just beneath, representing an age of bustling automats, lively theaters, and GIs kick-kick-kissing dames in the street, be judged less golden, less mythically American than the present age? Maybe, if current trends prevailed. Peter often mused, mused on questions like this, like these, on the promenade. There were no answers, only the pleasure of knowing that the view of the Manhattan skyline re, uh, revealed something in motion. Once there were twin towers, then there weren't, now there were new towers. Peter was grateful that his aimlessness earlier in life had allowed him to make the most of the speed bumps he encountered during the 80s. We know he survived AIDS. He made the most of the speed bumps he encountered during the 80s, which jarred him into better sync with the newest of New York's, even if advertising did sometimes seem nuts and the connection between now and yesterday had become obscure. He was wondering if archaeologists of the future would envy those who were walking around the city now during its current heyday when so many mad, exciting, unprecedented things were being done and remained to be done and created and imagined. Did you hear how deftly the title was worked in there? That, that passage, uh, since it's the novel itself is about the conflation of years, was always there. And we were fumfering around for a title like crazy for a month. And there were lots of more pretentious, hard to swallow titles that were floated around, some by me. And then, and then that came up. And I thought, OK, that works. And we did a quick search. And OK, nobody's used it. And thank, you know, I couldn't find anything in Shakespeare and Dowson and all, you know, all these people. So we used it. And I kind of retrofitted into that passage. Isn't it good? <laughs> OK. Next passage I want to read is um, Peter uh, has another friend of his age who also survived AIDS, who's now dying of prostate cancer, Jonathan. And he's putting his affairs in order. And um, P 
Peter um, attends uh, a meeting at John, John, John Jonathan's house one day when he's deciding uh, what to put in his will. And uh, this, this, this passage comes right after that. Uh, Jonathan and he talk about uh, the great machine of patronage that used to exist before AIDS um, between generations. Um, older men who would sometimes, you know, help uh, other uh, younger people come along in life. Back in the days when Jonathan's great machine was functioning, Peter hadn't understood its workings nor the system behind it. Friends of friends, usually men a little bit older than he and more successful, asked him to jacket and tie lunches and engaged him in genial conversation about this and that. And when they got around to talking about what Peter's career goals might be, other than the poet thing, he never had much to say. He didn't have a plan for his life, though that in itself might well have qualified him for special attention. He didn't know it, but those men were examining him, sometimes in a gentlemanly manner, sometimes lasciviously as per the loose sexual mores, uh, manners of that time, and sometimes in both ways at once. They wanted to see what he might be capable of or worthy of and what they might be able to provide. Yet just as Peter might have become the beneficiary of this machine, the thing broke down with AIDS. Everyone in books, and fashion and antiques and the arts who'd ever taken to Peter to lunch died. And he'd often thought that, he, that that might be one reason why, having to fend for himself, he drifted into his current line. I'd probably be running some foundation myself somewhere, thought Peter. Jonathan wants to start a foundation, his legacy. I'd probably be running some foundation myself thought Peter, as he strode from Madison Avenue into the lobby of his building, a soaring nave of gleaming marble, glass, and steel. Giving away grants from some ducky little converted townhouse in the East 60s, an office full of good antiques, happy enough, but not really in the game. The voltage of advertising hit him right in the face that day as he stepped off the elevator and into the atrium. The girls at the reception desk were smiling a little more magnetically than usual, their voices galvanized as they spoke into, spoke into headsets, directing calls, while in back of them, on a 30-foot expanse of video wall, large-scale animations representing the company's biggest clients, clients fluxed with provocative flash. The kids tripping up and down the atrium's jungle gym stairway, and the lobby of this place is like a three-story uh, gymnasium in a way. Uh, uh, running up and down the jungle gym stairway and across the main floor seemed a little sparkier than usual. And outside the gymnasium, a large meeting room off the main reception area, a young woman in dark leggings and a crop jacket, clearly the member of a client team inside, was standing next to the refreshment table, emitting signals that were apparently terribly important into her cell phone. It was a big day at the office. Important clients were everywhere. People nodded to a colleague. Peter, excuse me, <laughs> uh, nodded to a colleague, a creative director, who rushed past him with a delegation to meet an A-list TV star waiting in the reception area with an entourage. Upstairs, in his own private warren of offices, Peter was where Peter was headed. Key members of Macaw's. Mac 
communications team were spending a day with Peter's top people, led by Tyler, going through an inaugural series of conceptual explorations. Peter's kind of whored himself out to the biggest um, conservative um, demagogue in America, and this becomes a crisis um, when he realizes that he can really twist a really good brand message, but it begins to eat away at him, especially when his young boyfriend objects. Peter loved it when the office was felt this electric, the sheer energy of being inside a major ad agency at the dawn of the age of truly global glass media, mass media was like a drug. Madison Avenue was now the undisputed control room of civilization, whereas Washington and Hollywood were only its rec rooms. Actions like voting and going to the movies now seemed quaint, uh, seemed quaint now that the purchase and consumption of the right soft drink or the right body wash promised to put the ex experience of life right now into focus. More than in politics and entertainment, the higher processes fibrillating the top levels of advertising were charged with the full juice of vast national and global conversations of the collective unconscious itself. And the young people involved in these processes, even while not actually working, existed in a higher orbital spiritually than everyone else. They inhabited a better place than Earth, a possible planet where the abundance of everything good was a given. For not only were these young ad execs among the best and the brightest, the most creative, self-actualized, and best-paid <coughs> excuse me, individuals on their planet, they could depend on the daily exhilaration of work and play at the font of contemporary civilization, the source of ideas that functioned for consumers like answered prayers. Being in this line of work, wielding its lightning, was an ultimate privilege, Peter often mused. Ten times better than riding, in a part, uh, riding to a party in a limo with Nick's, his ex-boy boyfriends, one-time friend Madonna and her crew. At the agency, Peter got to create campaigns, movements, that would sweep whole continents with messages about products and services so beneficial that people would spend trillions of do 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 dollars on them and along for the ride in that traffic of wants and needs, aspirations and means came fresh ideas about self and family and nation and world which brought life on earth forward, upward. Talk about Illuminati. Here was the true elite. Tyler and the rest weren't hoodooing around with naive medieval travesties of so-called secret ancient wisdom. They were serving humanity by generating enlightenment from moment to moment, conjuring new values and powers and orders and blessings, which was the chief thing Peter felt that separated him from Jonathan and the gentlemen of their generation who had devoted themselves to older values and powers and orders and blessings. Those guys were just a little bit less alive. Okay, so I'd like to read one more pa passage as soon as I rehydrate. Um, at, toward the end of the novel, Peter and his young boyfriend-to-be, uh, Will, 
uh, travel upstate to a house that Jonathan has in Hudson, New York, um, which is, you know, the ideal of country house uh, of every every beauty one that I've ever seen. This is this is rolled into one. And Peter and they haven't had sex yet. They haven't even slept in the same room yet. Jonathan rather perversely has put them in the same room. And this is uh, at the end. This is at the end of their first dinner. And. Um, before dinner, uh, after dinner, and before going up to bed, they they uh, go out to the terrace. When they rose from the dinner table, Peter and Will both started to help Aldabar clear, but Aldabar gently rebuffed them. Aldabar is a mm, staff member of jo Jonathan's staff, who's responsible for everything, including Jonathan's body. Um, they started to help him clear, but Aldabar gently rebuffed them. I've got it, thanks. Don't worry. I don't want you to miss the entertainment. Oh, yes, said Jonathan, turning to glance outside. We have to go out on the terrace. The sunset, said Will. I'll join in a minute, said Aldabar. Do people want coffee? No one did, and the three stepped outside. The evening was cool, but not cold. Fine for sitting a while and, in quotes, visiting, as Jonathan quaintly referred to it. They installed themselves in the sumptuously scaled deck furniture, while looming before them over green hills, now fading into a mute royal flush of mossy grays, was an evening sky ablaze in orange and gold. The sun's fiery disk hovered just above the landscape, while a spray of altostratus clouds crested up symphonically from the horizon, irradiated from below, edged in mauves that melted into a background of out-dazzled da 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 sky blue. It was a scene worthy of one of the noble Hudson uh, River School painters whom Peter learned to love as a child, Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, John Kensett, and the like. Nature's picturesque majesty, prompting the contemplation of wilderness from the edge of civilization, the quest for the sublime by way of the beautiful. Only this was no painting, and the real thing, as viewed from Jonathan's terrace, came, from, came with its own sound score, a profound yet buoyant silence that might be composed of a thousand harmonized echoes. Uh, a, a thousand harmonized echoes of a thousand winds swirling in the valleys surrounding them. We're lucky it's clear tonight, said Jonathan. You're getting a good show. I love this view. It's a view of time immemorial, hmm, said Will. If you look at it the right way, you can see both the glacial and the instantaneous and everything in between. OK, said Peter. I'm, I'm shutting up, said Jonathan. Aldabar brought out a tray of three cognacs, and no one made a fuss when he withdrew. And this is a precious spot, said Peter. You like, said Jonathan, this is what I came up here for. Chelsea isn't, wasn't really home. This is. They toasted silently and relaxed back into the terrace furniture's thick striped cook, cook cushions, my goodness. Getting rid of the apartment must have been hard, said Will. Not really, said Jonathan. Parting with the paintings and the real estate was a cinch. They're only things. Now someone else will get to love them. Same with the furniture. I was only in a line of people meant to own and love and protect those things. And God knows the things themselves will get, uh, continue to, man to demand the protection they need, right? That's what price tags are for. But you know what I worry about? 
things like the rocks I found on the beach at Fire Island. I have one that looks like an emerald when it's wet, and a perfectly brown, a perfectly round black one, like a black, big black pearl, and one that's shaped like the head of a cycladic statue that I brought back to Roberto, his dead boyfriend, when, while we were dating. I still have that rock upstairs next to a real cycladic head. What happens to that after I'm gone? Does it go back to being just a rock again? After all the, all the meaning it's accrued, the privilege it's enjoyed, it gets forgotten or overlooked when the so-called important stuff gets divided up? There's no museum for cute rocks. Neither Peter nor Will could think of anything to say. Don't worry, said Jonathan. The rock is in the will, too. My leaving it to someone will probably keep it special for another 30, 40 years. More silence. Sunsets always make me feel unworthy, said Peter. Like, can I enjoy this enough? Can I be present for this sublime thing enough? Will giggled, and Peter went on. Harold and I timed our trip. Harold is Peter's dead boyfriend. Um, Harold and I timed our trip to India, this was in the 80s, so we'd be able to be at the Taj Mahal during the full moon. People do that. And we must have visited the place, oh, five or six times over the course of, what, four or five days in Agra, trying to drink it in. One night, we even made love in the garden there. Well, jerked off, kissing on one of the marble benches. Jonathan snorted. No one was around, said Peter. You could do that then. It was just this one big public garden, barely well kept. And there were maybe six or seven other people in these acres and acres of garden and this glorious mis m mirage of a ta Taj Mahal floating, floating right over there. So sweet, said Will. He wrote about it for the times. Well, except for the jerking off. <laughs> we used to call it our garden in the night of love. Have you gone back? asked Jonathan. No, said Peter. Oh, darling, you must. Going back to places like that is the point. Well, I don't know, maybe. I hope so. We used to joke about Venice that way, remember? You only went there the first time so you could start returning there. Excuse me. And returning and returning. Will was about to ask Jonathan if he had ever been to the Taj Mahal, then thought better of it. The bottom third of the sun's disk was now melting into the horizon. There was no sinking motion to see, even if you stared at it constantly. Yet second after second, at the moment you became aware of registering no motion, you saw the result of motion and the disk was lower. Soon it was gone, and from, the below, and from below the horizon the sun now fueled a further explosion of color. Clouds of molten copper edged in iridescent mauve shot, shot with radioactive purples and pinks. They talked for another hour or so as the sky faded and about Indian Point and nuclear power and the sustainability of civilization. Aldabar lighted lanterns and poured another round of cognac and then it began to feel cold. It's got to be an early night for me, said Peter. Oh, me too, said Will. Poor boys, said Jonathan. You must have been up early. Well, to bed then. Tomorrow we'll take you antiquing. Yay, said Will. Can we go to that new kitchen kitchenware place you mentioned, said Peter? Yes, yes, said Jonathan. It's right there. Kitchen stuff is like porn to me, said Peter. Inside at the bottom of the stairs, Jonathan bid... 
Peter and Will good night. We alarm, but there are no motion detectors, he said, so feel free to go padding around during the night. Leftovers in the fridge are up for grabs. Couldn't eat a thing, said Will. Neither could I, said Peter. There's water in the little fridge in your room, continued Jonathan, inside the cl cl closet. I found it, said Will. Aldebar makes a part of pot of coffee around nine in the kitchen. Yeah, I have mine in my room, but we can all have some breakfast uh, together at 10.30. The shop's open at noon. How does that sound? Peter and Will said goodnight and went upstairs together. As they entered the room, Peter felt a pang of excitement mixed with terror. Thank you. That was so beautiful, Stephen Greco, you guys. And now we'd like to bring up Victor Bumbelo, and he's going to do some interviewing for us. So put your hands together for Victor. Oh, out here. Should we take seats? Oh, great. And I'm going to move this for you as well. Here comes Jake, our friend. He's going to move this out of the way. Okay, great. It's very heavy. There we go. Excellent. Thank you. There it goes. Thank you, Stephen. Books in the back, $15. <laughs> Let's move some units, people. Yes. <laughs> That's what you're here for. Um, Let me speak that way. Hi, I've known Stephen since 1979. Um, in the uh, Stephen's lover partner Barry Lane um, was my first producer in New York of my very first play in New York and through that I became family in a way with Stephen and Barry and a whole group of us so I'm just so delighted to have him here in Los Angeles and um, I want to ask him a couple of things. Uh, just remember, we said softball. I would like to. I would like to uh, start with just uh, what the Kirkus Review said of now and yesterday. Okay, and here it is. Um, Peter and Harold. This is just part of the review. Peter and Harold settled in Brooklyn in the 1970s, confirmed lovers, one with the journalism ambitions, the other a poet. Then Harold died during the early days of the AIDS crisis. Peter forgot poetry and built a boutique ad agency now gobbled up by a conglomerate where he peddled, quote, goods and services for a brave new world in which people, in which more people needed more things. Greco slides a slice of American gay culture under the literary microscope. With his gift of observation and turns of phrase, Greco offers a book about big ideas rather than action. Ideas about gay life, about the depths and importance of friendship, about money and power, about the need of love and sex, and about a man's moral relationship to who he is and what he does. Greco has written a life-affirming yet melancholy, a John O'Hara-like analysis of the post-baby boom meets a millennium queer big apple society. Pretty good. Um, I adore, I adore O'Hara. When I read that, it's like, oh my god. How nice. I think you are. Um, anyway, uh, Stephen, one of my first things I would like to ask you is, um, why did you wait so long to start writing novels? Oh, well, 
some of the answers sitting in this room. When I, a lot of the people I knew in the 70s and 80s, novelists who became very important gay novelists, um, were better than me and were writing amazing novels and I was afraid I maybe didn't have anything to say. And I got involved in magazines and that was lucrative. I in fact though did keep a diary that uh, during the years of between 75 when I came to New York and 2000 when I first my, wrote my first novel and those parts of that were published but it was reality and I felt I could do that. It was hard for me to figure out how to figure out a story I wanted to tell and then I uh, the first thing the first novel was resulted from a a, a story for a serial animation I was writing for a hip-hop media company that I had at the time and we commissioned someone to write it and I didn't like it so I thought I'll do better than this even though I'm an old white guy and uh, the company collapsed in the bubble of 01, which was fine, but I left was left owning all the creative property, including my own stuff. So I thought, well, let's knock it into a novel and see what happens. And Amazon took part of it in, a, in what was then a pilot program of direct download for fiction. And I, it, I didn't have an agent, but it sold really, really well. And I got two options out of it that I didn't have to share with anybody. And I thought damn, I kind of like this. And it, it, it was scary. I, I had worked with a lot of choreographers and, and other kinds of artists who talked about this, oh, this creative ocean coming out of them. And when I felt it coming out of me, cannoning out of my, you know, it was scary. But, dur but during that time, you did an awful lot of other writing, um, your yeah, journalism. And why don't you speak a little bit about that? Well, I, I mean, I did a lot of magazine writing for many years. I was an interview and interviewing people who had set their own agendas creatively, and that's what got me out of magazine writing, just saying, I want to organize my life like them. I don't want to wait till Cy Newhouse calls one more time and offers me too much money, you know, because that happens. And uh, I fumfered around for six months and then suddenly had, was like sticking my head outside the matrix. I just had another way uh, of looking uh, at, at things. Um, is, is that the that's, right answer? Right. Oh, but I will say this. <laughs> magazine, magazine writing taught me anyway how to be, how to write strategically strategically, how to design a piece of writing as much as feel it. And I know some authors who only feel their way through pieces, which is just great, but I have feelings and so I, but I also kind of mapped out what I expected the story to do, what I expected the pot to do, how to set up, you know, if I want somebody to cry when he's dying, well, how did Dickens do it with the death of Bo, uh, Joe in, in Bleak House? Well, he sets it up. And so, you know, I, I, I enjoyed all that. and. Um, it, it was kind of a design process as well as the feeling process. So my, I'm saying my experience in magazines helped me get through a novel and not quite get lost in, in the process. I think one of the uh, wonderful things about reading this novel is uh, Stephen is writing about two different generations of gay men, uh, the younger generation and the older, where he honors both generations and has insights, different insights. Somebody's stealing my book. Uh, um, <laughs> into, into them. Okay. I can talk over this. Sure. <laughs> We could talk over this. Um, anyway, would you like to talk a little bit about that, your expertise in that? Um, it's, I think it's kind of amazing. Well, thank you. I wouldn't call it expertise, but I do respect the men of my generation very much. And um, 
the ones who are alive now are <laughs> mostly hooked up, which I would gladly date that demographic too. But they're, you know, as the character Peter says, that, you know, younger men are the ones who are out there and still alive, um, and you know, alive and kicking. Um, uh, I, I've never looked at people as objects, so I don't. Now that I'm somewhat fine to myself to be somewhat older, when I see younger people and I'm thinking of dating or whatever, I don't. I mean, I, this sounds so self-congratulatory, but all I mean to say is I, I never objectify. You know, I don't objectify them, and I don't. I, I'm the last one to know if they're cute or hot or something because I'm so interested in what they're made of. And so when I started to write Peter, I realized, oh, I better make him cute because that will sell more books. But <laughs> but, but I, I really cared about putting in a lot of what I'd learned about the dilemmas of men of his age. He's 28. And that's very specific. It means he came of age in a certain time in the 80s and his mom had looked like that and his dad was doing this and the national mood was like that. And you, you know, obviously you have to think those things through. And I've known people like that too, but I didn't want Will to be just any person. I wanted to make him up. So I don't know if it's respect, but you know, one observes and one tries to pour a little bit of science into the character before you start rumbling around with his soul. I mean, the younger character in this has never had love connected with sex and I think thinks it might be theoretical even. I think he gets to the age of 28 having been just prized for his abs and not knowing if he's ever going to have more and not even aware till he meets Peter that there really is more. Whereas Peter grew up, you know, each love affair until he, you know, love of his life was like, you know, symphonic and true and ultimate and everything and Peter just keeps in the habit of that once it again. Another major character in the book is the city itself of New York that you do so well and um, can you talk a little bit about the New York of now and the New York of yesterday? Well yeah I guess. I mean I travel a lot so I see uh, for my work and so I've seen places where I'm, I'm, a, I'm addicted to New York and I love it um, and I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm addicted to New York and I love it like a voluptuous opponent I can't get out of its embrace but you know other countries and other cities are doing the future are doing now better than New York is and they're certainly doing the future better and New York may just decay into a lovely kind of Venice but um, there are still some fresh things happening there, and I just, as a magazine editor, so I'm used to trying to see them, and just reportage is part of what makes me interested in New York. Sure, downtown New York is becoming a little bit Shanghai. Uh, Manhattan is becoming a little Shanghai-ish, and one reason why there's so much annoying fuss about Brooklyn is because I think that's where that New York of, you know, post-war in the 50s and all, you know, spirit and heart, that's where it's gone. I hope it continues to live somewhere, but um, New York still draws a really nice um, multicultural kind of melange of people, and I think that's what's so great about it. Still. Great. Um, these days, you know, it's so difficult for people, even, you know, established writers, pub to get a book published, and so congratulations. Um, are you happy with your publisher? Oh, I'm so delighted with my publisher. Thank you ask for asking that. Kensington is, you know, they do a lot of mass market trade paperback kind of stuff. And it's not exactly the pinkies up literary, uh, literary, fi literary fiction kind of house that we, 
we also thought about. Um, um, but not only are they supportive and said, you know, we can't wait for your next one and blah, blah, blah. I love what they do. They seem to, a lot of their books seem to, their premise seems to be highest common denominator that you can do some literary fiction thing in a, in a story that re reaches um, a, a large audience. I mean, uh, somebody like O'Hara, I think, was a pretty good writer, but he, the, the yarn appealed to people. I mean, I often think of Graham Greene as somebody who, you know, maybe he wasn't most writer in the world, but made a good yarn and wrote beautiful fiction. So I think Kensington is a good place for me to try that again. Even though, even though <laughs> I love, I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who are, you know, rehashing Forster and redoing Proust and a lot of my dear brothers who I respect a lot, you know, crank out lapidary prose and all that stuff. Uh, and, you know, there comes a... There comes a point where in a novel where you need to apply a bit of that, but then you need a little demotic too, do you know what I mean? And moreover, your t story t telling has to take into account people who maybe have a limited taste for fancy shit. <laughs> so, and I say that because you can go fancy in another way. You know, you can, I, I was an interview for many years and I heard people, I interviewed people whose words, word for word over lunch, you know, said something, but then there was an arc in back of spoken dialogue and interview that really said something interesting and profound that didn't need fancy vocabulary or literary references to make its genius felt. And that really excites me. That's what I hope is embedded in some of these characters and arcs and story. And uh, what are you working on now, Stephen? Oh, after this, after this long blah, 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 Victorian kind of novel, I wrote a quick and dirty, amazing, fast, sexy, straight love story, science fiction thing set in 1947 that trades on an interesting idea about World War II and human evolution. And my agent doesn't seem to understand what it is yet, but he will. <laughs> and then I started writing something that I knew if this works, this book works, we're going to need something that's a little more, you know, social this and commentary that. And I've, I've, I have a lot of thoughts about rich and poor, as we all do. And I think I have an interesting idea about how to tell a rich and poor story right now. So I do that. And I'm also working with, um, um, on an interactive app, um, with a, a well-known director, and it's, I can't talk much about it, it'll be out in, Jan in December, but it's an amazing thing that retrofits a real story, retrofits recorded footage of a real story into a fictional drama with some narration and some B footage and some characters with some interactive sessions that are not a game but let you enter the mind of a hostage negotiator and see whether uh, once you realize all of the uh, uh, input you would do the same thing as he or she did. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um. <laughs> If you didn't understand that, that's okay, because very often when Stephen is telling me what he's working on, I don't really get it, but it's always wonderful in the end. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, let's hear if there's any questions. Robin. Are there, uh, are there tensions that arise that are 
relationship because of the generational? Yes, there are. I mean, I like to say it's not about the generation gap because the ultimate thing facing them is that fucker love, which is as hard and irascible and nut-like as it, when you're old and think you're a captain of the universe as when you're young and clueless. So there is that. And there's some comedy of manners stuff. His older, Peter's older friends and Will's younger friends, the, uh, they collide. A f couple of cl friends collide once at the opera. Peter meets somebody that he's been on a board with a, a benefit raising a million bucks and Pete Will's friends are barely susceptible, uh, are barely recognizable as human beings. They're not dressed. They're not wearing jackets. I mean, it's sort of so... Uh, the, there's some comedy of manners stuff there, but it's played purely for laughs in a way because I don't think their real dilemma has, has to do with age. Jim. I have a uh, six-day drive back to Boston coming up. Do you have any audio books? Uh, I don't, but just give me, you know, I'll give you my phone number and I'll just read for six hours. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's funny, somebody asked me about recording this and it's like, okay, we're going to have to do a little editing with the stuttering, but, you know, some days it happens not at all and some days it happens a lot. Hmm? They hire actors. Yeah, they hire actors. Groovy. I'll, I'll come. I mean, there are people who know how to do this better than I do. Any other questions? I have a question. Sure. Please. I read the book and I'm curious about the character of Jonathan, yeah. who is one of the best characters in the book, and whom you seem to have a great deal of affection for. I do. I knew people like that uh, when I was young in New York. Is he based on anyone in particular, or any two or three people in particular? He's a composite, but I don't think of anyone that you might know. I've just known, and he's a documentary filmmaker. He came from a very poor background, one of these amazing self-educated people who went to, in my mind, Yale, and just, you know, a, a, a adopted the, the culture, as opposed to being somebody rich and, and sort of inheriting it. And uh, he's just a composite of, I've always, in every book, I've always tried to write a best friend that I don't have. You know what I mean? It's just a fun, easy character to write. And Jonathan became that. And I had to make him the guy to die. Um, so, and, and uh, but he, uh, he's not really based on anyone. Whereas, Peter's based on me and um, Will is based on, oh, and Harold is based on the, the dead boyfriend, the dead is based on Barry. Yes? Beg your pardon? Cover picture. Glad you're mentioning that. I love the picture and I love the cover, but that skank ass house ain't in Brooklyn Heights. Um, <laughs> It has maintenance issues. Check out the banisters. I say this with love and respect for the designers at Kensington, and I had a very artsy cover in mind, very interview magazine of, you know, very persona, face, looking at face, that only after you realize it, for after you look at it for three minutes, oh, that guy's got laugh lines, that guy's young, you know, just, I wanted something arresting, and this is so gemütlich and, war and wonderful and warm. But I, I feel the house is more Fort Greene. <laughs> oh, where, where is it? I don't know. I think they yanked it out of stock somewhere. If you look closely, you can see they photoshopped the same four flowers to make a bouquet. <laughs> but it, for me, it's about maintenance issues. The house is designed as... <laughs> my landlady's house, That the house in the book is dependent, you know, is like very well maintained. <laughs> But thank you for asking, because it stuck in my craw until I realized it's a great cover and people love it. Jennifer. I just wonder how much research you get to do for a book like this. I mean, how much, Endless. How much did you have to research versus how much did you actually experience? 
Research is such a joy for this because there are always technical details. Peter, uh, Will grew up in Santa, Santa Barbara. So just thinking about the kind of real estate he would have lived in, his father was a sort of, I think he was an aerospace um, entrepreneur and his mom was a uh, head of private school and what that kind of woman would have been wearing to work every day, what the dad would have been, the car they would have driven, what they would have bought. Um, uh, there was a memory, I remember there's a memory where Peter is, is, is coming into a Chinese, is coming out of a Chinese restaurant and they're talking about spring and I wanted to use a memory of my mother bringing lilac into the house um, you know, in the spring and throwing open the windows and all this lilac. And when I wrote that, and then one of the first readers said, he lives in Barbara, Barbara, Santa Barbara, there's no lilac there. And as, as for a previous book that I wrote where I had to talk to the a horticultural society about what grows on the canals in Venice, because it was, it, that was, there was a scene there, I, it, I joyously went back and started looking what, what blooms in spring and at what altitude, and I came up with wisteria, which... I have a feeling for, but lots of research about things like that. Did you have a specific kinds of? Well, I think I was most intrigued with the advertising agency. Oh, well, I've worked at an advertising. I was an officer at a. At, I worked for many years at a multicultural magazine, upscale multicultural magazine called Trace, and we formed uh, an ad agency in partnership with then with TBW Chiat Day out at out at um, Marina Del Rey, and um, that was my first. Um, um, experience with it and then I got since we talked about transcultural audiences and global audiences not that many people were charting concepts that would span these kinds of markets and audiences so I wound up doing a lot of consulting for JWT had formerly J Walter Thompson and you know peddling my semiotic analysis and brand strategy as an outsider which became very valuable to them to hear me not use ad bullshit and talk plainly. Uh, and it became quite lucrative. I still do it now and then. And the multi-story atrium kind of uh, hive that I describe in the book is based on their Madison Avenue. Well, now Lexington Avenue uh, headquarters. They're not ads. I, I have a lot of respect for ad people, but they're not nearly as creative as they think they are, most of them. We have time for a couple more questions. Stephen. So, um, Oh, thank you. What, what was it like um, as a writer uh, for you to revisit the 80s in a highly emotional time? And how were you able to sort of, um, I guess you can't really be objective about it, but, but how, what kind of effect did it have on, on you during the writing process? It was devastating, and um, the same thing happened recently when a bunch of my friends got together to watch Larry Kramer's Normal Heart, and it was hard, very hard, harder than I thought. Um, for the book, it was, I, uh, it was, there was, it was partly therapeutic. I, I, like Peter, didn't realize how wounded I still was, though high-functioning and successful and dating again. What the character realizes is that one unsuspected impediment to actually falling in love, what this was the suspicion that nobody's going to be equal to that dead prince, that little statue in the urn. And I, that discovery surprised me, and I kind of thought I knew it, but boy, I really knew it after I did the work of the novel. So it was terrifying, kind of. Um, but, you know, life is terrifying. <laughs> we had a, a very lovely moment last summer, which was very difficult in a way for both of us, when he read the first chapter to me in the house where Barry and Stephen lived. It starts uh, in 1975, actually, in the, the passage 
is all about the guy who turns out to be Harold, and you think this guy coming to New York, and he's the guy who's not the poet, but he's got the job at the Times, and he's, things are happening for him. Flash forward to 2012, and he's been dead for decades. It never <laughs> happened for him. Time for one more. Does anyone have a question? Okay, well, listen, um, congratulations, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, oh, please. Um, the book is truly marvelous, and it's, it's a very exciting thing when you have a dear friend who can create an absolutely beautiful piece of art. And um, congratulations. Thank you very and good much. Luck. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.